welcome to um, the, the fifth uh, lecture of the Islamic Finance Seminar Series. Um, tonight, it's a really great privilege to have uh, Anne Pettifor here, who's going to talk to us and teach us about um, ethics, interests, and finance. Um, Anne is Director of Policy Research at uh, Prime Economics and a fellow of the New Economics Foundation. Um, there is so many things I could say about Anne. Um, people will tell you about the financial crisis and that no one could predict the financial crisis. Uh, it was so unexpected. Well, tonight we have someone in the room who actually did predict the financial crisis in her 2006 book about the coming debt crisis in uh, the Western world. Um, Anne is um, both a serious economist but also a serious policy campaigner. And we could talk about so many of the things that she's done. Maybe I'll just mention one, which was she was the co-founder of Jubilee 2000, um, which lobbied uh, hard um, to get enormous debt reduction for, uh, for the third world. Um, and uh, today she continues to campaign in the zone of sustainable finance. Tonight she's going to talk to us about ethics, uh, interests, and finance, and sort of the, uh, the outside view, um, if you like, um, on the potential role of uh, Islamic finance uh, and the ethical focus of Islamic finance. So I'll hand over to you, Anne. Um, Anne, is gonna, uh, she, Anne has talked for about 45 minutes. Um, let's leave questions to the end, okay? So any questions you have, we'll wait for the end and then uh, we will fire up. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. I find that I know is incredibly busy and demanding on your schedules. I'm very honoured to be here. So um, it's audacious of me, and some would say foolish, to agree to lecture to you today on the vast subject of ethics, interest, and finance. Uh, my uh, qualifications for doing so are modest, to put it mildly. I am not a philosopher and have not made ethics a subject of study. I am qualified to say something about finance, but I'm only an observer, not a student of Islamic finance. I do, however, have a deep and uh, lasting interest in the nature and pricing of money and of credit, and therefore of debt, and have spent many years in studying and writing about debt and interest. Above all, and this is what I intend to major on today, I'm interested in the economics of money, credit, and interest. Some of you might know my interest in this arose from my involvement, as David has said, in Jubilee 2000, which was a global civil society campaign that resulted in about $100 billion in nominal terms of sovereign debt being cancelled for 35 countries between 2000 and 2005. Later, I advised and worked very closely with the Nigerian government on its debt negotiations at the Paris Club in 2005, which resulted in $30 billion of Nigeria's debt being cleared, which the finance minister argued would lead to savings of $47 billion for Nigeria over the following years in saved debt repayments. So the guiding principles of the Jubilee 2000 campaign and the principles that guide my work were grounded in Judaic and Christian law, based on biblical ethics relating to human rights, debt forgiveness, opposition to usury, and the need for periodic correction to imbalances, the Sabbath and Jubilee principles. I personally was unfamiliar with the biblical laws and principles underpinning the concept of Jubilee before I launched into the campaign. I've always taken Jubilee to refer to a celebration of, for example, the Queen's 50th wedding anniversary. Instead, the principle arises from what the theologian 
Ted Myers is called Sabbath economics. That is, the 2,000 year and older biblical laws and prescriptions that underpin periodic correction to imbalances. And we know these really well. Every seventh day of the week, as outlined in Leviticus 25, both labor and the land, in the broadest senses, were and are required to be rested. There is to be no exploitation of the land or labor on that day, according to the law of the Sabbath. Every seven years, the land is to be rested so that it can recover. According to scriptural practice, as outlined in Exodus 23, 10, 11, there is to be no pruning or planting in the Sabbath year, no attempt to kill insects. The fruit have to remain in the field, except for when passers-by servants or the poor can pluck to eat. Violation of the sabbatical year's land rest is considered such a serious transgression that it is specifically listed as one of the sins that led to the Israelites being conquered and expelled to the land of Egypt. The concept of the seven-year Sabbath should be extended to all forms of labor, but today it applies mainly, if not exclusively, to just one group, academia. The biblical principle and application of the sabbatical is alive and well in universities, ironic given that most academics disdain religious doctrine. Every seven times seven years, in the 49th year, slaves were to be freed, land restored to its rightful owner, and debts written off, so that a new beginning could be forged and balance restored. This new balance was to be celebrated by the sounding of a trumpet in the 50th year, the Jubilee year. The Jubilee principle has always inspired those rising up against colonizers, slavers, and slavery, which is why the Leviticus text from chapter 25 verses 8 to 10, was engraved at the time of the American independence from Britain on Philadelphia's Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty through all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. So the Jubilee principle has a deep and sound resonance uh, in history. So we drew in the Jubilee 2000 campaign on what Ched Myers has called the Hebrew Bible's vision of Sabbath economics, which contends that a theology of abundant grace and a communal ethic of redistribution is the only way out of our slavery to the debt system with its theology of meritocracy and its private ethic of wealth concentration. The principles and ethics underpinning the Jubilee 2000 campaign resonated with Muslims and with other peoples of faith and with those of no faith at all. Because of the Jubilee 2000 campaign, worldwide opposition was mobilized against a modern form of usury, operated at an international level, which effectively traps innocent citizens and whole nations in debt bondage to foreign creditors. One only has to think of Greece and Spain and Portugal and Ireland to understand how relevant and current this, is, this issue is. Because of my work in sovereign debt and my grasp of how interest can amplify and compound debt, that I've come to admire the work of the Islamic finance sector in trying to uphold Quranic opposition to the practice of usury. These efforts are particularly commendable given that they are undertaken within the framework of today's liberalized and as a consequence financialized global economy. It is my view that society is confronted daily by usurious practices that are on a scale historically unprecedented. The Medici's of Florence would have envied the freedom enjoyed by today's 
masters of the universe. Financiers, bankers, private equity investors, and payday lenders to the world. How even, however, even while there is considerable unease within society and between societies, even while there is an understanding that those operating beyond the reach of governments and regulators, on what Peter Kellner has called planet crisis, those operating beyond the reach of, of, of priests, archbishops, and popes, even though we have an awareness of this, there is a sense that things are not right, that our world is unbalanced and unfair. Nevertheless, the reality of usury and the scale of usury remains concealed from the wider public by modern finance's deliberate masking and obfuscation of its activities. The complexity, opacity, and volatility of modern finance is precisely the thing that enables the masters of the financial universe to amass capital gains on a scale unprecedented, but also enables them to pose a systemic threat of dangerous proportions to society, the economy, and the ecosystem. This makes the principles and ambition behind Islamic finance all the more vital, in my view, to the restoration of financial stability and social justice. And so I've been honored to be invited to share platforms with the practitioners of Islamic finance and to learn a little more about the principles behind the, their banking system and about the challenges faced by the sector. This experience has opened my eyes to what I consider to be a considerable challenge for Islamic finance. The fact that it is a system of banking operating within a liberalized, deregulated <coughs> economic framework that is entirely hostile to the values and principles upon which Islamic banks have been established. As a result, Islamic financial institutions find themselves unable to compete with Western financial institutions that do not operate under any prohibition against usury. Indeed, usury, we need only remind ourselves of Wonga's interest rates of 2,000% on short-term loans, is tolerated, if not positively encouraged, under today's liberalized and globalized economic framework. I noticed that Wonga have made a donation of $800,000 to the Conservative Party, and that must have occurred to the Prime Minister when he appeared at the Islamic Finance Conference a couple of weeks ago and committed London to becoming the centre of Islamic finance. A slight contradiction, it seemed to me, in that position. If Islamic finance or banking is to be made to work, I would argue, then its practitioners will have to help in the creation or recreation of an alternative economic framework within which it could operate safely and even profitably, one which honours and safeguards low or zero rates of interest on the creation of credit and as the price of borrowing funds. It is my contention, and this is probably the most controversial aspect of my speech, that John Maynard Keynes' general theory of employment, interest, and money, and I stress all three elements because the general theory does not place the stress that his enemies place on his work, fiscal deficits and taxing and spending. Instead, Keynes's overwhelming preoccupation in the general theory is with interest and money. To understand how Keynes' general theory provides a sound economic framework for Islamic banking, or indeed for an economy based on low rates of interest, it's important first to understand money. And I have to say that uh, as someone who's been writing a book recently on money, it's really quite hard for us to understand, and there's a great deal of confusion out there. Most orthodox neoliberal economists would have us believe 
that banks and bankers are mere intermediaries between borrowers and savers. <coughs> Paul Krugman, who calls himself a Keynesian, argues that. Most would have us believe that savings are needed for and prior to investment, and that loans are made from deposits, and that the price of money, defined as the natural rate of interest, is a function of the supply and demand for that money. Economists such as Keynes, Schumpeter, Galbraith, Professor Victoria Chick, Jeff Tiley, and Cullen Roach, sociologists, central bankers, commercial bankers, presidents, and politicians have known since before the founding of the Bank of England in 1694 that none of this is true. Private bankers are not mere intermediaries. Savings are not needed for investment. Bankers do not lend the deposits of their customers on to borrowers. Bankers do not use reserves parked in the central banks to lend on. The money for a loan, believe it or not, is not in the bank when a borrower applies for a loan. Bank credit money is produced out of nothing more than the promise of repayment. Bank money issued as credit does not exist as a result of economic activity. Instead, bank money creates economic activity. Credit creates purchasing power. Private bank loans issued by commercial bankers by a stroke of the computer keyboard creates deposits and not the other <coughs> way around. This was brought home to me most strikingly when Ben Bernanke was interviewed in March 2009 on American television. It was the first time ever that a governor of the Federal Reserve had appeared on television. And the day before, he had provided something like $80 billion to AIG overnight. AIG, as you know, is not a bank. It's an insurance company. It should never have had an account with the Federal Reserve. So the journalist says to him, Mr. Bernanke, where did you get $80 billion from? Was it raised from taxation? And he said, no, no, he says. We have at the Federal Reserve something that every commercial bank has. It's called a computer. And we enter a number into the computer, and we charged it to AIG's account, $80 billion. I have to say that I'm very glad that he did. Because if he hadn't bailed out AIG at that point, we would have faced a far worse systemic crisis than we have already endured. So private bank loans issued by commercial bankers by a stroke of the keyboard of a computer creates deposits. It is the loan application, together with the borrower's promise of both collateral and repayment <coughs> over a specified period of time and at a rate of interest, that creates deposits as Paul Sheard, the chief economist of Standard & Poor, had to explain to the clients of Standard & Poor this August. He had become so frustrated with neoliberals arguing that the creation of reserves by the central bank would create too much lending, too much money, and therefore inflation. He had to explain. And he explained like this on the, on the website of Standard & Poor. Banks lend, he wrote, by simultaneously creating a loan asset and a deposit liability on their balance sheet. That is why it is called credit, in quotes, creation. Credit is literally created out of thin air or with the stroke of a keyboard. 
The loan is not created out of reserves, and the loan is not created out of deposits. Loans create deposits, he wrote, not the other way around. So after a risk assessment, credit or money or finance is created by simply entering a number into a computer and charging the sum to the borrower's account. In bygone days, this bank transfer was made by using a fountain pen or a quill, and it was therefore called fountain pen money. The overwhelming bulk of credit so created is intangible, you don't touch it, bank money, and exists as nothing more than a promise to repay over an agreed period of time. At the most tangible, it is the quantities expressed on a bank statement. That's the most tangible form that bank money takes. <coughs> so we knew about this because the Bundesbank, which is a deeply conservative bank, explains that in the euro system, money is primarily created through the extension of bank credit, says the Bundesbank. The commercial banks can create money themselves. And the other extraordinary thing that many people overlooked is that the euro's introduction in the form of notes and coins dated from 2002. But it existed as a means of setting prices, contracting debts, and payment for over a year before it was embodied in the form of notes and coins. Well done. And the way to think, but I've been struggling to find an analogy to explain to people how this works. And uh, I eventually came across this one, which is so blindingly obvious. So I, I don't know why I haven't th thought of it before. Think of your credit card. There is no money in most credit card accounts before a user begins to spend. All that exists is a contract, a promise, with the banker to repay the debt created by the spending at a certain rate of interest and over specified time. Your spending out of thin air on, for example, an appliance, creates economic activity in the sense that it creates demand for that product and may encourage the manufacturer to employ more people to create more of those appliances. In other words, money has been created out of thin air. You've simply handed over your credit card. There is no money in your credit card which has enabled you to spend, but also to stimulate and create more economic activity. This is the great thing about credit. Money's quality, its acceptability and validity is simply due to its being able to facilitate transactions, as the genius and Scottish economist John Law was first to fully recognise. Money, he wrote, is not the value for which goods are exchanged, but the value by which they are exchanged. When we spend on our credit card, the card is not the value for which goods are exchanged, but the value by which we exchange goods for money. The credit card, after all, goes back into our purse or into our pocket. We do not hand it to the retailer except as a check on our credit worthiness or whether or not we have a contract with the bank. So what Law grasped before many others is that money is a measure by which we assess A, the value of goods we exchange, or B, and this is more complicated, the risk of holding money liquid or investing or lending it over time. So those who grasp this much still sometimes fall into another popular misconception, the idea that commercial banks can only create credit or lend on the basis of a fraction of reserves. In other words, so it is said, to lend a thousand pounds, the banks need a reserve 
£100 in their vaults, or in the vaults of the central bank. The reality is exactly the opposite. Reserves are created as a result of and to support lending. This is really hard for people to get their heads around. Most economists can't get their heads around this. Private banks obtain reserves from the central bank when they make a loan. And I think we may just have to explain this a little bit more carefully. When the bank makes this loan, when they, you sign promising to repay, this becomes a, an asset on its, uh, on its books because they get, it's going to earn interest from that loan. It's going to bring in revenue over time, maybe over the 30 years of your mortgage. But it becomes also simultaneously a liability because you might draw cash down immediately from the bank and take that £300,000 you borrowed and put it in another bank. So in order to manage that imbalance in the bank's incomes and liabilities and assets, the bank depends on the central bank for reserves. And the reserves enable the, the banker to manage that imbalance in between assets and liabilities and to smooth over that process and to clear checks between banks. So reserves are a consequence of you asking for that loan of £300,000 in the first place. They don't exist before that. So they obtain, private banks obtain reserves from the central bank when they make a loan. They keep reserves in the central bank in reserve. Reserves of funds banks need on a day-to-day -day basis to settle accounts with other banks as part of the check-clearing process for no other reason. Now, this is extraordinarily important, this process of banking and of the creation of credit. Why? Because as Marx noted, Karl Marx, the development of the credit system takes place as a reaction against usury. This violent fight against usury, on the one hand, Rob's usurious capital, wrote Marx, of its monopoly by concentrating all fellow money reserves and throwing them on the market. And on the other hand, limits the monopoly of the precious metals themselves by creating credit money. Before the development of the Western banking system in Florence and Holland, I don't have time to go into that, borrowers relied for their loans on the robber barons of their day. These were the rich and powerful, the masters of the universe, who by fair means or foul had built up a surplus of capital and held the surplus in their vaults as savings. And if I was a poor farmer present, I would have to march up the hill to the baron's castle and say, please, would you give me some money because I'd like to expand my piece of land and grow more wheat. And he would say, yes, I'm happy to lend you, you know, some money for your for your investment, uh, the rate of interest will be 15%. And by the way, I see you have a beautiful daughter. Bring her up to the castle. Those were the terms on which, in the old days, before we had a Western banking system, robber barons actually held society in, uh, in, under control. So they had to beg. Money was lent arbitrarily at very high real rates of interest or rent. But the power of robber barons in older times was considerably diminished by the development of banking and by the creation of credit out of thin air by banks. The banking and credit system robbed, as Marx said, usurious capital of its monopoly. So how do they create credit? As I've said, deposits are created when a banker, having confirmed by legal contract the promise to repay, backed by collateral, 
at a rate of interest and over a fixed period of time and having obtained the cash proportion of the loan from the central bank, then enters numbers into a ledger or a computer. After entering the amount of the agreed loan into the computer, the bank accredits the funds to the account of the borrower. By these means do they create the overwhelming bulk of the money supply. Many monetarists believe that the central bank, the Bank of England, creates the bulk of the nation's finances. <coughs> in fact, in Britain, 95% of the money supply is created by the private banking system, not by the central bank system. Um, there's just one thing that I haven't explained, which is that while banks can create credit and bank money, they can't create notes and coins, and they cannot issue notes, legal tender. This can only be issued by the central bank, and they have to apply for that, and I'll go into that in a minute. The rate of interest on credit is fundamental, I argue, to the health and stability of an economy, which is why much attention is focused today, for example, on comments from the Governor of the Bank of England about forward guidance on the likely rate of interest. The level of employment and activity in an economy depends critically on the rate of interest. Too high a rate stifles enterprise and initiative and renders debts unpayable. There is also a moral dimension, of course, to the application of rates of interest to what are effectively effortless activities. A low rate is also fundamental, I argue, to the health of the ecosystem. Too high a rate demands ever-rising extraction of the Earth's assets to generate resources for repayment. So I want to discuss tonight the two dominant, two dominant forms of interest rate. First, the rate set by the central banks, the base or policy rate of which the financial system alone can borrow, and which often bears no relation whatsoever to the full spectrum of private lending rates by commercial bankers. So everyone talks about base rates being extraordinarily low, but if you're a small entrepreneur, you do not pay 0.25% or 0.5% on your borrowing. You're probably paying 4, 5, 8% on your borrowing. So the full spectrum of lending means those loans which are short-term and long-term, those loans which are for safe borrowers and those for risky borrowers, and also in real terms uh, in relation to, to inflation. Because of its monopoly over the issue of notes and coins, the central bank today controls just the base rate of interest when it provides an endogenous supply of cash to commercial banks that in turn determine the quantity of credit created. It is the sole power to issue notes and coins that provides the Bank of England, for example, with a mechanism for setting the official base rate of interest. The central bank does this by providing cash on demand, i.e. When, when you're applying for a loan for £300,000 and you want £3,000 of that in cash, the Bank of England has to supply your bank with that cash on demand. And it does so without limit to, uh, to the commercial bank. Quantitative, quantitative easing operates in a similar way. The central bank swaps assets like reserves, which do not leave the banking system, but can be used for clearing with other banks, in exchange for government and corporate bonds, mortgages, and other assets. So a bank would offer an asset, say a government bond, worth of about 300 pounds to the Bank of England. The Bank of England holds this collateral or asset for a period, and then it returns it to the bank at a discount of its value, retaining, say, 5% or £15 of it. 
The difference between the original value of the asset and the discounted value is the rate of interest, or the repo rate, on a, on a specified date. In other words, the central bank takes its cut, returns the assets to the commercial bank, and it is the cut that then is set at the central bank's base rate. But what I want to stress here is that that rate is not set as a result of market forces. It's a rate that is decided by a committee of men mainly, and the Federal Reserve, men and women, but in the Bank of England, there's only men, and they decide on what the cut should be on uh, these assets, uh, and then return it. And this is how the, the base rate is formed. But the rates that we're really interested in are the ones fixed by private commercial bankers. The intangible nature of bank money means that the extension of credit is simply a book transaction. The only consideration on the part of the bank is the borrower's riskiness on the one hand and the need for tangible notes and coins on the other. And they can only be provided by the central bank. However, notes and coins are a declining portion of bank money in mature economies. In Britain, only 3% of the money in circulation in Britain today is in a tangible form of notes and coins. You all know that because you don't carry notes and coins around. You carry an Oyster card, a credit card, a debit card, and you pay everything via your cards. You shop on eBay with a card. You don't use cash. You use cash to buy your cappuccino or maybe to, you know, for very small expenditures. And so cash is shrinking as a share of the money supply. So if there is no necessary limit to the volume of credit that can be created, then it is essentially a free good not subject to finitude or the market forces of supply and demand. From this it follows, as Keynes argued in his treatise on money, that if the banks can create credit, why should they refuse any reasonable request for it, and why should they charge a fee for what costs them little or nothing? Keynes recognized that once the system of bank money evolved, society no longer needed to rely on existing wealth holders, the robber barons, for finance. <coughs> the owners of a surplus of capital were no longer sole providers of loan finance to the rest of the economy. Savings were no longer needed for investment. The powers exercised by the owners of wealth could be subordinated to society's wider interests. Credit creation by banks could provide investors, entrepreneurs, and innovators with the finance needed for investment. The rate of interest on this bank money is determined in ways quite different to the way in which the price of, say, tomatoes or smartphones or a pair of shoes is fixed. And the reason it is different and cannot be subject to the forces of supply and demand is because of the very nature of bank money and the way in which it is created. To manufacture a product such as, for example, a smartphone requires investors, designers or manufacturers to engage with first the land in the broadest sense of the word. Minerals and crucial elements of the phone have to be extracted from the earth and then transported to manufacturing sites. The extraction, supply and transport of these minerals are subject to both geological and geographical but also geopolitical constraints. Second, the manufacturers of the smartphone have to engage with labour in the broadest sense of the word. Labour has to be found and trained, wages have to be negotiated and sometimes disputes have to be managed. The creative credit faces none of these challenges. The banker engages with neither the land nor labour in the broadest senses of the word in the creation of his financial product. Sound banking requires good judgment, 
a conscience, an awareness of the law and of regulation, if there is any, and strong accounting skills. But the mere act of credit creation is effortless in the way that the manufacturer of, say, a mobile phone, no matter how slapdash or obsolete, is not. Because credit or bank money is created in this way, there is no necessary limit to the volume of credit that can be created. Of course, there are constraints, including, most importantly, the threat of inflation, too much money chasing too few goods and services, or the threat we now face of deflation, too little credit chasing too, few, uh, too many goods and services. But unlike smartphones, credit does not rely on finite mineral and labour resources for its production. So for these reasons, the rate of interest must necessarily be low. However, while society may no longer be dependent on private wealth for credit or loanable funds, nevertheless, the owners of wealth, the holders of wealth, can still exercise influence over the price of finance or the rate of interest. They can influence liberalised financial markets by hoarding their money or surplus or by parting with it. However, in a more regulated system, Keynes' proposed system, the rate of interest on loans across the spectrum of lending, short and long, safe and risky, and real, can be strongly influenced by central bankers, as Keynes was the first to explain. He understood, as many of his predecessors and contemporaries, and as many as our contemporaries do not understand, that the price of a loan, or the rate on loans of different maturities, are the reward not for saving, but for parting with one saving. In other words, the rate of interest is the reward to the lender for parting with the liquidity of his or her savings or stocks of wealth. In other words, the price of money or rate of interest is the reward lenders or creditors demand for tying up or parting with their money for a period of time. A lender or creditor's decision about where to place and for how long to hold her savings is in turn determined, first of all, by a need for cash for immediate use in purchasing goods and services, in which case she'd put her money in the money markets or in her bank where she could withdraw tomorrow. Second, by the precautionary motive and the desire for security as to the future equivalent of her cash. If she's worried about her pension, she might decide to put it into property or somewhere where she feels it's secure for an income in the future. And the third motive Keynes defined was the speculative motive, the desire to secure gains by knowing better than the market what the future will bring. So the decision to part with savings is made after savings are made and is based on the above three considerations, the need for cash, for security, and for capital speculative gains. This understanding of how rates of interest are determined and therefore how they can be influenced by central banks is embodied in Keynes' liquidity preference theory. It was, in my view, perhaps Keynes's greatest insight, one lost to academia and society today. Jeff Tiley argues in his book Keynes Betrayed that liquidity preference theory led Keynes to conclusions of the most profound importance. Ultimately, the theory turned classical analysis on its head. The rate of interest was the cause, not the passive consequence of the level of economic activity and in particular of the level of employment. Yet this revolutionary monetary theory is largely ignored by today's economics profession and forgotten by regulators and policymakers. Central to Keynes' theory is an understanding of bank money, 
not just as a means of exchange, but as a store of value. Keynes argued that once the system of bank money involved, evolved, society no longer needed to rely on the holders of wealth, the robber barons of old. The existence of bank money means, as explained earlier, that those fortunate enough to own a surplus of capital are no longer sole providers of loan finance to the rest of the economy. Second, under a well-managed banking system, managed, that is, in the interest of society as a whole, finance capital need no longer determine the rate of interest for lending. Instead, within a bank money system, finance capital can be held at bay and forced to play a more passive role in the economy. His liquidity preference theory led Keynes to argue that central banks, working with government debt management offices, could offer investors a <coughs> wide range of assets, bonds, of different maturity rates to suit their need for cash, security, or capital gains, their liquidity preferences. This theory formed the basis of Keynes's advice to both the Bank of England and the UK Treasury from 1933 onwards. The theory and subsequent policies demonstrated that rates of interest for the full spectrum of commercial loans are quantities <coughs> that can be influenced and even controlled by the policies of central banks and democratically elected governments. That theory was abandoned instead the determination of rates, rates, of rates was once again uh, transferred to the market. Keynes, in my view, is the only economist to satisfactorily explain how interest rates are determined and how rates across the spectrum of lending can be managed. His theory provided central bankers with not just an understanding of how interest rates are determined, but also with policies for managing. If the government wishes to keep to determine and to keep low the rate of interest over a range of time periods after it came, then it must arrange its own borrowing, i.e. issue its own assets over time periods that suited the liquidity preferences of the holders of capital. I think it's a really important issue right now. Right now we are living in a world in which there's a shortage of safe assets. The reason we have a housing market bubble in London is that people with surplus capital have nowhere else to put their money where they feel it will be safe and where they may be able to earn rate of return. Because there aren't a sufficient range of assets to meet the need for cash or for security or for speculation. And the government and the central bank is not playing a proper role in providing those assets. It's leaving it to the market. So because of the government's dominant role as an issue of bonds, the reward for parting with liquidity over different time periods can then be managed by governments or by central banks through the debt management office of the finance ministry. Uh, uh, so both greater control over its own financing costs and the rate of interest over those time periods. His great insight was his understanding that the rate of interest is a social variable, one that can be deliberately managed by the public authorities while at the same time holding finance capital at bay. Just as the social construct that is the central bank's discount rate is managed by the public authority that is the central bank. There were, of course, a suite of policies that arose from the theory, which established in Britain a long-term rate of 3% interest on bonds set against a short-term rate on bills of 1% from 1933 onwards. This was an extraordinary achievement at a time when Britain borrowed more than it had ever borrowed before and played a significant role in Britain's ability to finance the war effort. <coughs> However, his understanding of the nature of bank money, of the banking system, and how the rate of it has been well and truly buried by the public authorities, by the finance sector, of course, and by the main, and by mainstream academic economy. 
Controlling mobile capital is also central to the ability to control the rate of interest. Just as a well-managed banking system ends society's dependence on robber barons at home, so a well-developed and sound banking system should end society and the economy's reliance on international capital. With a managed banking system operated in the interests of both industry in the broadest sense of the word and labour in the broadest sense of the word, both government, industry and labour need not depend on or fear bond vigilantes or global capital markets. However, management of the financial system and of interest rates in particular will be subverted if capital is mobile and lenders in international markets offer higher or lower rates beyond a country's border, rates not appropriate to the country, which is why Keynes advocated controls over the mobility of capital, because he argued the whole management of the domestic economy depends upon being free to have the appropriate rate of interest without reference to the rates prevailing elsewhere in the world. Capital control is a corollary to this, he wrote. So Keynes understood that under a bank money system, not only was reliance on foreign capital ended, but that in order to manage the economy, countries should actually close their borders to footloose mobile international capital. That argument has been wholeheartedly lost. And for this, he advocated the taxing of cross-border capital flows. And we mustn't confuse here capital controls with exchange controls. The latter place limits on the amount of a nation's currency that can be taken aboard, but capital controls are like the financial transaction tax or Robin Hood tax, it's sand in the wheels of capital flows. An economist who would cringe at being defined as a Keynesian, the great free trader Professor Jagdish Bhagwati of Columbia University, has argued persuasively that China and Japan, different in politics and sociology as well as historical experience, have registered remarkable growth without capital account convertibility, i.e. with capital controls. Western Europe's return to prosperity was also achieved without capital account convertibility, with capital controls. In short, when we penetrate, he wrote, Professor Jagwati, the fog of implausible assertions that surrounds the case for free capital mobility, we realize that the idea and ideology of free trade and its benefits have been used to bamboozle us into celebrating the new world of trillions of dollars moving daily in a borderless world. This is a very famous paper by Professor Jim Jagwati, which I recommend you all should read. So Keynes understood that the modern day practice of using the rate of interest to manage the exchange rate of the currency would also hurt the domestic economy. And he therefore advised that central banks should manage exchange rates over a specified range by buying and selling currency. Again, this is blasphemy in today's neoliberal world. This would both allow interest rate policy to be focused on domestic interest and at the same time ensure stability and transparency in exchange rate arrangements. This suite of policies, management of credit creation, of interest rates across the spectrum of lending, the regulation of mobile capital, and the management of the exchange rate gradually loosened the control wealthy elites had over the financial system and the economy. They formed the basis of the Bretton Woods financial architecture, which while it endured, was and still is defined as the golden age of economics. These policies in turn loosened finance capital's control over society and over democratic institutions. The power, status and prestige of bankers in Britain and the United States was considerably modified. The golden age was a period that the famous historians Eichmann Green 
and Lindet described as a golden era of tranquility in international capital markets, a fulfillment of the benediction, may you live in very dull times. Keynesian monetary policies manage the banking system in the interests of society as a whole, ensuring that all major stakeholders in the economy enjoyed a share of the cake. However, soon after Keynes' death, his theory and its practical application were neglected and discredited. In its place, the Hayekian, neoliberal, and so-called Keynesian schools of economics restored the old classical theory. This once again asserted that savings are needed for investment, that bankers are mere intermediaries between savers and borrowers. Above all, the classical theory elevates the role of finance capital and capital markets in the lending markets and restores to private wealth the power to determine interest rates. It is a collection of plausible fantasies, an ideology that has enriched the rich and systematically replaced more democratic <coughs> policies and financial management. In other words, by removing the policies and regulations that allowed governments to manage the economy, Orthodox economists restored to finance capital the despotic power it had exercised before the stock market crash of 29. Power resided not only with those who had amassed great wealth, but also with those who could create new funds through lending. By obfuscating the nature of their business, bankers established a new kind of despotism. Today, central banks retain a tenuous hold over the short policy or base rate charged to banks and not to other borrowers, but do not exercise or do not want to exercise influence or control over the full spectrum of interest rates. These are left to be fixed by the market, and this market in turn is rigged, as we learn from the LIBOR scandal. We now know that rates on the whole spectrum of lending are socially constructed, fixed or manipulated by finance capital's minions, by submitters in the back offices of banks like Barclays, and by banking cartels, such as the British Banking Association. They are not fixed to suit the wider interests of society. Neoliberal theorists and practitioners like Jens Weidmann and Ottmar Ising, respectively president and former chief economist of the Bundesbank, while aware of the nature of credit creation, appear to have little understanding of bank money and deliberately ignore the role of commercial banks in credit creation. The effect of this blind spot concedes and reinforces finance capital's power to fix the price of money. That helps explain why the neoliberal economic policies of the German Bundesbank and the ECB placed Eurozone economies at the mercy of the reckless and unfettered speculation of capital markets and their usurious rates of interest. There are differences though. Today's robber barons enjoy eye-popping stocks of wealth that are historically unprecedented and the rates of interest they demand for parting with this wealth make the usurious practices of the money lenders of the past seem modest. Given today's liberalized and globalized financial architecture, Islamic financial institutions cannot hope to compete with the rates of interest or the rate of returns that commercial bankers, hedge fund managers, and those working in the shadow banking system can offer savers or investors. It is this hostile economic framework that renders the ideals and ambition of Islamic finance practitioners utopian. To achieve their ideals, Islamic bankers would do well to give deeper consideration to this wider economic framework based on Keynes' liquidity preference theory and to the more just and sustainable international economic framework that he espoused. Thank you very much.
It said to people, thou shalt be poor, thou shalt be unemployed because there's not enough gold to create work for you. Now it's crazy. We can create work by just wanting to create work. I can create work tomorrow by going out and, and deciding to embroider something or to work and make a piece of work of art or something. I do not need a bar of gold to enable me to work. What happens in society is that we do need to make arrangements between ourselves so that if I grow embroidery and you grow works of art and I want to exchange them, then there's a means by which we can do that. But gold does not have to be that. So I think there's really big fundamental differences, and I don't think we're going to resolve it in this conversation. What is your solution? I think I've spelled it out quite clearly. Can, can, I, can, yeah. I, can I throw a question at you, Anne? So, so ultimately, you're interested in controlling the price of money. Absolutely. Right? So, um, and, and so it's not that you think that there can be no interest rate. Um, it's just that you want to ensure that it is a reasonable or a fair interest rate and that it's not in zero. So, yeah. But see, the problem you face is that if you impose a, a price controls on anything, you, you in theory alter the supply. You know, if you, alter, if, you, if you fix the price, you therefore affect the terms upon which your people are willing to make something available. And what we're talking about is money. Um, so and you can control that in multiple different ways. You talked about capital controls, uh, etc. And so, but your move then is to say, well, look, um, if we impose price controls on how much you can charge for your money, um, that could have negative consequences on the economy because that could infect investment. People would not be willing to make their money available, therefore people won't invest, therefore we don't have new projects. And, and to counter that position, you make the claim that actually this relationship between saving and lending is, is false. Um, mm -hmm. You don't need people to make their money available in order for banks to lend money yeah. to fund projects. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to worry about price controls that restrict the supply of money because banks can create it anyway. And that's key, a key move for the argument. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me that this, the claim is just is, is, is something about it just doesn't strike me as right. <laughs> and maybe it's just because I'm stuck in a paradigm. And that paradigm is that I think about banks as, as, as forms of intermediation between people who have money and people who want money. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but then when I listen to you talk, it's, it's, it strikes me that it, are you mixing up the dematerialization of money and uh, it, it, are, you, are you mistaking the dematerialization of money for the absence of this relationship between saving and investment, because even though things are more complicated than they used to be, in the old days before we had computers and you could press a button, um, you would need some money in the bank before you could lend that money on. And I know things have got a lot more complicated, and we can press a button here, there, and everywhere, and things happen, but the fundamental relationship remains the same. Someone needs to be providing you with the money in order for you to lend the money. So are you mixing up the dematerialization of money for you know, that change dynamic? And secondly, are you mixing up central banking with commercial banking? So central bankers who have the control over the production of money, when you need 80 billion for AIG, they can press a button and they create it. But that's not what commercial banks do. Commercial banks cannot create credit, cannot create money. They are dependent ultimately on somebody providing it, even if through the dematerialization of money, they put in a lot, they press a bunch of buttons and different things happen. But ultimately the same dynamic is there. And if that's right, final point, if that's right, then your argument falls apart because you need credit to be possibly to be created without the providers of money from savers. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, now there's, there's two things. 
I mean, I have packed a lot into this talk, and, and, and not enough. Um, I think it was far too long anyway. But the fact is, there are two kinds of banks. There are savings banks. There are banks who literally take somebody's savings and you put it in there, and they literally just lend that out. We have it peer-to-peer -peer lending on the internet. It literally is peer-to-peer -peer lending. I put £100 in there and I lend £100 to so-and-so. And somebody in the middle assesses the risk. That's not credit. That's not what banks do. And it's not what they've done since 1694. Indeed, since before 1694. Okay. So there are banks who do nothing but take a pot of savings and lend it on to Mrs. Jones. And they have to manage the credit unions do that. And they often go bust. But even big banks do that, don't they? When they go, no, to, the repo, they they go to the repo market and they have no, to go to another don't. bank to get they the money don't. to find <laughs> And I'm quoting Mervyn King here. Mervyn King did an interview with um, Martin Wolf, you know, when he retired. And Martin, he said to Martin Wolf, you know, the problem with, with today is that normally the private commercial banking sector creates 95% of the money supply. But right now the banks are effectively busted and they're frozen. And they're not creating 95% of the... He said, we don't create 95%. The, the private commercial banks do. And honestly, Dave, you have to believe me. Banks create credit. And they have done since, you know, since the old days when the old goldsmith had a, had a bar of gold in his back, in his vault in Florence. And he would say, OK, I, I hold your bar of gold. And then when you come back, uh, I'll give it back to you in full. And then he realized that actually he could give you a receipt for this bar of gold, and then it would stay there. You wouldn't come and collect your bar of gold, and then he could give another receipt against this asset, and then another receipt. And monetarists describe this as fraudulent, because the old Florentine banker was now creating credit out of thin air by issuing these receipts, which were then exchanged and moved around and so on and so forth, and the old bar of gold stayed in the bank. So that happened before 1694, when we began to do that. There was an amazing story in, 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 um, in the history of banking about uh, a, a, a small district in Ireland in the 1970s when, because of a trade union dispute, the banks closed down. And the community carried on banking. And it turned out that the barman in the pub became the banker because he knew Joe Block couldn't be trusted with his money, and he knew so-and-so was an old, you know, uh, was careful in hoarding his money, and he began to manage. And the thing just happened because checks were cleared without anybody creating anything, because all that it took was the management of the trust of these relationships. So believe me, and I say it again, you don't need savings in order to lend. And, and you know, that, that for me, um, and I'm not quite at your question yet. For me, that is, on the one hand, a wonderful thing. It means that when Bernie Bernanke is faced by systemic economic failure, by systemic failure of the global banking system, he can do something which bails up, which enables us to get through, right? It means that when I want to go and <coughs> tackle climate change and I want to insulate all the houses of Britain, I can get the finance for it. I, there'll be a shortage of labour and there'll be a shortage of kit, but there'll never be a shortage of finance. So from that point of view, it's a wonderful thing. But it's precisely because it can be made so easily that it has to be regulated and managed. Now, um, be because it's not about savings and borrowing, it's not about the bank taking this and lending that, 
And I repeat what I said. It's about entering a number into a computer on the assessment of risk. In the old days, that's what bankers used to do. They don't do it anymore, I have to say. When I first applied for a mortgage, I went to the bank with my husband, and we had to sit down and more or less reassure the banker that our marriage was going to last for the next 25 years, and he could depend on us both having salaries to pay for it for them. In fact, it didn't, but never mind. <laughs> um, when my son applied for a mortgage, not very long ago, for a house in Brixton, it was effectively a voice at the end of the phone. So, you know, banking risk assessment standards have been eroded. But actually, that's the task of the bankers, to risk, assess the risk of whether you can repay. And once he's assessed that risk, he literally enters a number into a computer and credits your account. So, therefore, that's what Keynes' point is. Because it's so free, because it's so easy to create, it should never cost anything. Because it's infinite. You know, it's like fresh air. Well, fresh air is not infinite, but do you know what I mean? It's the thing there is no shortage of, never will be any shortage. But for that reason, its price should be low, but also should be regulated carefully. Because if you don't get regulated, you get what we have now, which is massive asset price inflation, such as we've never seen in history before. When you walk around London and the house price is going like this, if you buy the uh, Financial Times' How to Spend it, uh, magazine every weekend and you see watches for sale at 64,000 bucks, you know, you know there is big money out there and the prices of assets are inflated in a way that no central banker discusses with us. If we're wages and prices doing that, all hell would break loose, but it's not its assets. So, um, to answer your question, yes. Um, the whole point about what Keynes argued was precisely because it's not about savings being needed for investment, it's about the rate at which someone is willing to part with their savings on various terms, and people will be. They'll be reluctant to lend to someone risky. They'll be reluctant to lend for more than three months or for more than 30 years or for less than 30 years. And his argument was provide a range of assets across that spectrum of borrowing to enable money to go into that. And by that means, will you bring down the rate of interest across the spectrum of lending? So he, his theory was not that savings, that the availability of savings determines the price. You, don't, you can't have price controls. What you can have is management of the spectrum of borrowing across, across the whole range, and then why bring that is complicated. But I recommend you read his liquidity preference theory, which nobody reads these days, and which has been you know, marginalized at the back. Thank you, uh, thank you very much for your enlightening lecture. Um, I'm just wondering, I'm slightly hurt off by the new stories that you mentioned today. Um, um, in order to analyze a project, we always consider the cost of capital. Um, if we consider interest as the cost of capital, as one component as a cost of capital, there's also a cost of equity associated. While we're talking of all these theories, I'm just confused and perturbed as to how do we establish uh, the cost of capital, be it the cost of debt or be it the cost of equity, but valuing capital itself, how would we value capital? Well, Chris, capital is, is, a, is a complicated concept. People often think of capital as 
being a surplus, which is the result of economic activity. I'm speaking here mainly about credit. And the cost of credit depends upon a whole, aspect, a whole range of factors. The cost of credit, if you are uh, a drunk and you're lying in the gutter, is going to be very, very high. The cost of credit, if you've got several properties behind you paid off and you're well off, is going to be very, very low because you're a less risky borrower. The cost of credit, if you want to borrow long term, could be higher than if you want to borrow short term, depending on how people think about the long term and how they think about the short term. So the cost of capital, when people talk about the cost of capital, they're talking about the cost of, if you like, the robber baron's surplus which he's got in his vault somewhere, and how much he's going to charge you for having access to that surplus. Then you're talking about the relationship between a saver and a lender. But if you're talking about what the bank is doing, the bank is creating credit. And the, cre the cost of that credit, as we've seen right now, is 0.25% in the European, in the Eurozone, uh, for banks. Uh, it can be 1%, 3%, 5%, 8%, 15%. It can be 2,000% if you're longer. So the fact is you can have a whole range of costs of capital or finance. I would call it finance. And uh, that will depend on all of, those, all of those determinants. Can I just... Can I just, just Oh, sorry, I've got another question. So we've I'm not going to go last. So, uh, so yeah. come on in. Um, so, it seems to me that the ability of banks to create money is, is connected to um, asset bubbles in a very yeah. fundamental sense. So, somebody takes out a mortgage um, is doing so maybe on a speculative um, you know, yeah. reason. And then, once there's actually a correction with you know, this asset bubble, they're stuck with the debt. And yeah, they're yeah. stuck with more debt than they. Uh, yeah, and the value's not there anymore. Exactly. So should, do you agree that, uh, you know, as the Jubilee principle, to bail out the debtors rather than the people that are extending creating this, yeah. this credit? Yeah. There's a good question. There's two things, and perhaps I haven't made that clear in my talk, which is that there's easy credit, and then there's dear credit. So there's the price of money, and that's, to put it very crudely, and then there's the availability of money. Um, I believe in highly regulated credit. I believe that you shouldn't lend to someone who does not have the capacity to repay, not even at 2,000%. Okay? But that means, basically, I, I am Keynes argued, that lending for speculative purposes should be constrained, and if not banned, even. Um, and you're right, if someone takes out a mortgage on the value of a house, they believe that if the house is going to increase in value forever, this is the illusion of the bubble, um, and then they get, then the bubble bursts, and they let they're they're in, they're foreclosed upon. Um, so uh, uh, the question then becomes, what kind of lending? The quality of lending. So why was money lent to subprimers in the United States? Um, well, we know why, because Goldman Sachs was after 15% on their on their loans, and you couldn't charge 15% to a safe borrower. So you have to find unsafe borrowers. So you went lending to the poorest subprime borrowers in the world. And it was an extraordinary thing, really, because you could get 15% out of them, even if short term. Uh, but if you got out of it quickly enough, you'd be okay. You'd have made your 15% over a year or two. 
before they go bust. But, but unfortunately, they went bust before Goldman could make all the money it wanted to make on its famous um, collateralized debt obligation. So, um, so it's a question of regulating the, the availability of credit. And I didn't really talk about that here. Um, so that lending is for sound, productive activity which generates income that can repay the debt. Now, that's hard to judge. That's what we hire bankers for. I personally don't think banks should be nationalized because I can't see clerks, civil servants sitting around thinking, can this Mrs. Jones repay her mortgage? You know, that has got to be something, it's in a commercial assessment, <coughs> you've got to assess whether or not that's possible. But in the old days, that's what we used to do. We used to assess very carefully whether a, a loan was going to go to productive activity or whether it was going to be used to be go gambling. Can I please have £3,000 from the banks because I'd like to take £3,000 out of the lottery on Saturday night? Well, the bank says, yes, because you might win, and then we do really well. But if you lose, £3,000 gets lost. But you can do, you can borrow £3,000 to gamble on the lottery today or in even riskier activity, okay? I, I think that's wrong. I think that we need a regulated banking system where you, where you, where you can only lend for, for that. And then, and then at rates of interest that are very low and then make the debt ultimately repayable. I mean, to be honest, I would prefer zero rates of interest um, with terms and conditions. Um, but if the clerk wants half a percent for the business of assessing risk and of managing the process, well, I'm very happy for them to be paid a fee for the management of the process. Um, but, but the lower the rate of interest, the more sustainable, in my view. Yeah. Awesome. Quick, quick question. But how would you assess this level of, I mean, credit, or the price of credit under your system? I mean, at the moment, there is a supply and demand that's, I mean, there is some unbalancing, but eventually it does kind of achieve, reach a level where, I mean, the market corrects itself. I mean, would you have like just one central regulator for the world credit or national regulators? No, I, prefer, I would prefer national regulators because as I said in my talk, you know, the rate of interest for the United States is likely, which is a huge country, is likely to be different for the rate of interest for Australia or for Rwanda. Um, you see, I, I, I don't think there is a correction. I don't think it balances out. I think what we get is a financial crisis. So what we've had is, is, a, is a, a financial system which has allowed the market to, <coughs> to create credit without regulation, crazy loans for subprime lenders or for even more dangerous borrowers, and charge massive rates of interest and nobody backs an island. Nobody backs an island with longest rates of 2,000%. Nobody complained about that, or at least, you know, we've begun to complain about it, but it's, but it's accepted. Um, and what happens then, ultimately, is that there's a crash. The debt is default. It's just like night follows day. Now, when, when, it's, when, it's, when these rates are applied across the whole financial system, you get the whole financial system crashes, which is what happened in 2007, what happened in 29, and what's going to happen again? Because we still haven't... We haven't, still haven't regulated either the creation of credit or the management of credit. It's still left to just whatever, whoever fancies to do what. The only rate we manage is the base rate, the Bank of England's rate. And that rate is borrowed only by bankers, by nobody else. So it doesn't affect the whole system. Well, obviously, well, wouldn't this system that you were advocating cause a huge problem, let's say, with project financing in 
I don't want to say the third world, but the developing world. No, on the contrary. On the contrary, you see, what happened was when Keynes applied this in 1933, together with Roosevelt, basically, he brought interest rates down dramatically. Um, Britain had this huge loan to the United States and was renegotiated at a lower rate of interest, which then meant that the British people could start to repay the debt. Okay? But then he kept that rate and other rates very, very low, which meant Britain could finance a war against Hitler. And, you know, it was a very expensive war to finance, and it had to be financed for six years. All kinds of project finance had to be raised. But then it continued from 1945 to 1970. Nobody had problems with project finance between 45 and 70. And living standards in Africa, and I come from Africa, were much, much higher than they are today. Today, it's not possible in Africa to raise finance for a risky project to build a hospital or to, uh, to, to uh, dig for resources or to turn your, your cocoa into chocolate bars rather than just export raw materials. The finance for building the factory to turn your cocoa into chocolate bars is not available to the people of Ghana. To the, to the producer of Ghana, because it's far too expensive. They can't find it. They can't finance it. Their, their chocolate that they grow is at such a low price that they can't earn enough money to repay the rates of interest that are charged for a project of building a factory that would turn chocolate into cocoa bars. Okay? So things are far worse in Africa now than they were between 45 and 1970. But what is harder is that the banks don't make that kind of big money. We don't have, we didn't have hedge funds, we didn't have private equity, we didn't have the scale of money that's currently made, the scale of wealth that we live with today. We have far better living standards and far more broadly spread than we have today. You've already asked a question, is there anybody else that has a question? Did you have your hand up? No, she said scared. <laughs> so, yeah, you wanted to ask another question. Oh, right. sorry. Um, yes, you were talking about the creation of money and so forth, so I, I presume you're referring to fractional reserve banking. No, I wasn't. I very, very precisely explained in my talk that there is no such thing as fractional reserve banking. There hasn't been fractional reserve banking since 1694. Well, modern economic theory or other economic theory or other economists would suggest that that's exactly how Many banks of them do, money. absolutely. Um, and you then talk about regulating uh, regulations and the Bank of England only controlling the base rate. Yeah. But there's also another thing, which is the cash reserve ratio. And the cash reserve ratio ultimately controls how much money a bank can uh, value uh, a bank can create. And when, of course, a bank creates money out of thin air and it lends it, yes, that increases the money supply. But as and when that money is repaid to the bank, so when over the term of a loan, when that money is repaid, then that value also disappears. So if you have a look, look over the long run, the correlation between the cash reserve ratio and the total amount of money in creation is pretty much constant because it's been extinguished and created. That's rubbish. The point about credit, which is that it is, it is this intangible thing, is that it creates value, it creates economic activity. And that value is not the credit. That value is the work that is done, the project that is financed, the economic activity that is undertaken, that's the value, the house that is built. You can't destroy that house that's been built with that money. But of course the money, the credit, evaporates because it laid nothing. It's just the thing what enabled that property to be built. 
So to say that value is destroyed by money is crazy. It's not right. It's created. It creates money. Or it doesn't. Right now, the banks are withholding credit. They're not creating credit. We are lending to the banks. The banks are not lending. In Britain, the majority of us are depositing money in the banks. This is bizarre. It's never happened. We invented banking systems in order for them to lend. They're not lending because they are effectively bankrupt. So at the moment, they just plan to clean up their balance sheets and fix their balance sheets and get more money from the central bank and blah, blah, in order to clean up the mess their bank balance sheets are in. So we don't, we don't have value. We don't have jobs. We don't have investment. We have the lowest levels of investment over time. We don't have economic activity. We have a slump. We have a depression because the banks are not lending. Well, I think your view is very pessimistic, and I, on conclusion, conclusion, I would say so we can we to agree to disagree. Can we? Yeah, That's right. it. Can we? Can we talk? So, uh, Deirdre. Hey, thanks for the talk. That was very interesting. I'm just wondering. seen in our, in our seminar series over the past few weeks 
that actually when Islamic finance creates a structure to lend money, they rely on LIBOR plus. Yes, exactly. Which doesn't seem to support your theory. Um, so I, I wonder just very, very, very briefly, because uh, we've taken so much of your time, it's been fantastic. Yeah. Um, does it turn out that Islamic finance is actually not much of a support for your claim after all? No, the point is, this is the, this is the, this is the point of my speech, is that, that it's impossible for Islamic bankers to function within the Western financial system and keep rates low. It's not possible for right. them to do that. They're up against, and I met them in, in the Middle East, HSBC and all of that. I, it's really a struggle for them. When savers want to put their money in the bank, they don't want to put it in an Islamic bank, because it's not going to, they could go across the road to HSBC and get a lot more. So it's very hard for the Islamic banking system to function within this framework of financial liberalization, which is my, the point of my talk was to say bankers can't operate in isolation of an economic framework, which is what Islamic finance is trying to do and failing to do. And everybody says it's this cheating and so on that goes on. Of course there is, because these bankers are struggling within a massively hostile environment to uphold these principles, and they can't. And, and I don't personally blame them. So I say they should change the environment, and that would make low interest rates or even zero rates sustainable for Islamic bankers. So when we think about Islamic finance, we need to focus on the ethic and, and not focus necessarily upon the ways in which sometimes institutions may be forced to engage in practices that seem to be... Yes, but both the ethics but also the financial architecture in which they operate. So they don't operate in a vacuum. They operate within a financial architecture. And even though it might feel like it's free and liberalised and so on, it ain't. It's very much a fixed architecture. And that architecture, if we can change that, I think we could make Islamic banking sustainable. And thank you for a fabulous interesting talk. Thank you very much.